Welcome to the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. I am Boomer. I'm Alan. And we are recording in three locations in the United States of America. <laughs> I can't really pin it down to a region anymore. Uh, this is the podcast version of the movie review website Swamp Flicks. I am a little like blank right now. I'm waiting right now for basically the vaccine to come my way so that I can uh, feel better about doing stuff outside of my house. I'm very much just bored and sort of floating in limbo. I don't know if y'all are, have more excitement going on in your lives, but I feel like nothing has changed since the last time we talked in my little world. I got my first shot. Hell yeah. Yay. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, my quarantine pod consists of just me and one other person. And until this weekend, we have been at a zero recently, but uh, she's immunocompromised. So she is actually coming due for shot two. And I just got shot one. And it's uh, that's exciting. That's fantastic. At least half the Swampflix crew is uh, in the vaccine process right now. So um, that's a good sign, right? That's a good, like, yeah, I should be sample size. I should be officially at immunity now because I got my Congratulations. second one a couple weeks ago. I know. Time flies when you're working so much. <laughs> yeah, my job is ramping up the amount that I'm in the office right now, even though very few people in the office are vaccinated yet. So maybe that's another reason why I'm getting antsy right now. But yeah, have you had any time to watch movies lately in between working extra? I watched Diabolique. I don't know. I don't speak French. Sorry, y'all. Sorry, y'all Frenchies. (laughs) But I really enjoyed that. It was really interesting. I'm only familiar with that as like a cinema classic you should see. I really don't know anything about it. Well, that's better, actually. I really, really enjoyed it. But it's also one of those that I can't really say too much about without kind of spoiling the whole movie. Other than like, it's very Hitchcock-y, very French. Can you give me a genre? It's very thriller, horror, sort of Hitchcock, more in the vein of like Psycho, except it's still more of a thriller, but it's it's very good. Basically, there's this boarding school and the headmaster has a wife and a mistress and the wife and the mistress plot to kill him. It's good. I, I recommend it for sure. A recommendation. Okay. Criterion horror is the genre I'm hearing about. I was going to say, it, <laughs> it is on Criterion. And actually, the reason why I watched it is uh, Criterion has like this whole uh, collection, is what they're calling them now. It's like uh, queer horror. So it's like a lot oh, yeah. of like Criterion horror stuff right now. And I've been digging through that one. That sounds great. Yeah. I have also been watching some queer films lately on Tubi, which is the opposite of Criterion. But that is uh, sort of what I've been gravitating towards lately. And I have been actually putting together some copy and I don't want to repeat myself too much. But when I first was coming back from my writing retreat at the end of last year, I didn't actually come straight home. There was a second location, like a second cabin that I went to that was like kind of a transitional back to society kind of situation. And they did have to be. And I just kind of immediately went to their LGBTQIA plus section and was looking at what they had and was just watching the trailers uh, on the TV in that cabin and saw an awful lot of TLA releasing and breaking glass pictures films, which, you know, those two sort of dominated like the gay indie film scene in like the post Brokeback Mountain pre-Trump years. And basically it was like 
everyone who could get a hold of like a blip camera was making a movie for like thirty thousand dollars and tla was like yeah we'll put that out sure why not um <laughs> so i i watched three that i'm currently doing write-ups on uh the first one is is it just me which is about a guy looking for love in la and you know, there's only like nine different rom-com plots in the world, right? And this one is the Cyrano de Bergerac plot by accident, where he is chatting with someone online and they really hit it off and they have a phone call. And then he realizes that he was actually still logged into like his roommate's dating profile when they started having the conversation. And then hijinks ensue. <laughs> Except that our lead, I don't think that he's a bad actor, but he's really trying to play like deadpan and witty. And instead he just kind of comes across as mean and an asshole. Like he, there are times when he's delivering dialogue that is clearly meant to be just like a withering, you know, barb, but he just kind of comes across as like a, an insulting dick. So that one I did not love. From there, I also watched one called Go Go Crazy, which is sort of attempting to be a best-in-show or drop-dead-gorgeous-type mockumentary set in a Pittsburgh go-go club's annual competition for the best go-go dancer in the city. And everybody is just a really broad stereotype. It's very dated, both in like kind of the overt racism of some of the competitors and the fact that one of them is like clearly like modeling his character after like a Jersey Shore dude. Oh, yeah, that's very dated. Yeah, you know, both of those from, like, 2010, 2011, they were both from that era. And then the third one I watched, I was actually surprised by how good it was. There is a guy named Matthew Camp, who used to be a go-go dancer, is, like, a an OnlyFans sex worker, but, you know, does other stuff. He's been very sex positive, and he gives a lot of, like, talks, and I guess he's pretty well-known within the community, and some years back, he was in a movie called Getting Go, the Go Doc Project, which is also a fake documentary, but it's not like a mockumentary style. It's a movie in which a shy, soon-to-be college grad becomes sort of infatuated with this go-go dancer. And then is like, oh, I've been thinking about shooting a film for my senior thesis, a documentary about like the go-go scene in New York. And then the two of them eventually like get into a relationship and a lot of it was very amateur, you know, um, where it was clear that both of them were actors sort of at the beginning of a career, not fully solidified into having that talent yet, but that also kind of contributed to the documentarian nature of it to the point where there are parts of the film where I'm not really sure if it is actually like Matthew Camp's actual apartment that they're shooting in, right? Because it kind of looks like it could be. So I thought that one was pretty good. And I enjoyed the ending, especially because the guy who's claiming to be shooting this documentary states that his thesis is that like the goal of the queer community should be assimilation. And the sort of go-go dancer kind of opens his eyes to how reductive and kind of ignorant that idea is that he can see the point of view of this person who wants to be accepted but also is not really invested in uh, assimilation the way that he is and honestly thinks that it's not uh, the way forward 
So those were the three that I watched on TV. You know, it was a pretty broad range and a mixed bag, but sometimes, you know, when we're doing these, Brandon, you'll ask me if I seen anything recently and i have nothing to tell you but i actually have several <laughs> more this time it's been a very uh a very movie heavy period for me i also watched noah Baumbach's directorial debut kicking and screaming i did not like it i found it annoying and honestly it made me kind of angry it has a real bad reality bites problem where <laughs> the the issues of the young adults of the 90s are infuriating because in comparison to what we have been dealing with as we came of age, like post 9-11 through the Trump years, the concerns of like apathetic 90s graduates really get under my skin. Like the privilege of choice that they have, the just privilege of apathy that they have, it's really really fucking infuriating so i did not care for it at all if i had seen it when i was younger i might have thought oh this is fun this is funny um and of course you know parker posey's in it and she's great in everything but man man did it make my blood boil just like oh everything's so awful like you have no idea how easy you've got it to have come of age at that time so i'm not going to give kicking and screaming a recommendation i feel like if you want to see sort of something like that but which doesn't make you as angry ladybird right because ladybird is also kind of saoirse ronan's character and that is kind of ignorant and annoying but not not to the extent where the ennui of white men in the 90s is and the movie also pokes fun at her a little bit right like it kind of knows that she's being ridiculous yeah and when it pokes fun at some of the other characters in the movie, like Eric Stoltz, who is, you know, he works at the bar in town and, you know, he's like, uh, he never, he never actually finished getting a degree, but he's been going to school for years. Like it's treated with the same editorial eye as all of like the fawning over, um, Ethan Hawke in Reality Bites, where it's like, oh, he's so cool. He's one class away from a degree, and he just won't get it because it doesn't matter to him. Like, oh, uh, God, make me never want to do anything with my life ever. <laughs> <laughs> Gen X apathy in general is pretty annoying. Yeah, you know, I, you know, we are the MTV generation. We feel neither highs nor lows. I've said all I want to say about kicking and streaming, so I will just say, you know, avoid it if you uh, don't want to let it get under your skin. And if you're a person who watches it and feels the warmth of nostalgia, just know that I do hate you personally. (laughs) (laughs) I also saw a pretty terrible Italian movie called The App. I was interested because it was 79 minutes long, and I was like, oh, I can do that while I'm riding my exercise bike. It's about an Italian actor who has been living in L.A., but originally comes from a wealthy Italian family. But he goes back to Rome to shoot a film in which he will be playing Jesus. And his girlfriend, who is going to be staying behind in the States, tells him to go ahead and get on this like app called Us, which is sort of a dating app slash like open relationship app even though neither of them actually want to have an open relationship she asks him to get on it for the purpose of her thesis which is about like relationships and 
the modern era and applications, et cetera, et cetera. And it seems like that could be interesting, but it really doesn't do much with it at all, especially like his role as Jesus in like an upcoming film is mostly like tertiary to anything else happening in the plot. He occasionally goes in for like screen tests. And at one point he's in a trailer going like, why have you forsaken me? But there's so little of that in comparison to just a lot of him talking on the phone and not actually talking on the phone. It's people leaving voice messages back and forth for each other, but they're doing it in real time. And I know that I just, just finished complaining about Gen X, but I'm going to get on my, my generation horse and be like, I don't understand that at all. If you're just going to leave each other voice messages, then what's the point of not even getting on the phone? Just get on the phone, especially for the point, (laughs) especially for the purpose of a scene. It's like, why, why was that the directorial choice made? I don't know. The app has this really interesting glowing image on Netflix when you're scrolling through. So it's going to catch your eye, but I don't think that there's anything worth watching it for. You know, it's just dangerous information to me to know about any awful movie about the internet because that just calls my name like a siren. Yeah, I was going to say, (laughs) you got to watch out for him. (laughs) I wanted to warn you. Maybe I should have just not mentioned it at all. Yeah. I can be strong. I watched London Road, which is, of course, going to be our next movie of the month. But I guess we'll get plenty of time to talk about that when it comes to it. And I guess the last thing that I saw recently that I loved, which I would give a big recommendation to, other than Getting Go, which is a marginal recommendation, this one that's a big recommendation for me, is Vampires vs. the Bronx. Oh yeah, that looked really cool. Yeah, it's on Netflix now. It was really good. I think it was produced by Lorne Michaels, so there is a little bit of like Saturday Night Live energy to it, because it does have a couple of cast members, uh, past and present. But yeah, it's a lot of fun. It sort of uses vampires as like a metaphor for gentrification. It's mostly kids in the cast. So it has like big like gremlins, monster hunter energy. Yeah, I give it a big recommendation. It's a lot of fun. And not to sound too corny, but like a great message. But yeah, that's what I've been watching. What about you, Brandon? I've actually been watching a lot of musicals lately. <laughs> I know we had just talked about, I, I think it was off mic last time, just about how like musicals aren't really our thing. Um, but every now and then like you find one that you like. I revisited one that I don't think about very often, but like rewatching it, I realized that it was like the roadmap to everything I enjoy about art, which was the Rocky Horror Picture Show from 1975. Oh, yeah. I get that for you. yeah what is your general take on this movie like how do you feel about it i'd say uh, apathetic to pro like i'm definitely not against it i think that it's fine i think that it suffers from hype backlash because i think we've talked about this before it exists for me kind of in that same place as inception where anyone for whom it is their favorite thing is intolerable and not that great <laughs> as a person. But the thing itself is actually like good. I think that uh, Creature of the Night is a bop. And obviously also the oh, time yeah. warp. The music in general in Rocky Horror is great. Yeah. It's very nostalgia for me. It, it very much reminds me of like the my very stereotypical like 
high school where a group of misfit friends watching Rocky Horror at midnight, you know, it has that nostalgia factor for me. Did you used to go to like the live no. like, shows of it and all that? No, I doubt they really even did those in Baton Rouge. Or Fair enough. At least not when I was in high school. So. They had some in Chalmette that I went to like later on, like in high school. But why I'm asking that is like, I think of this movie as being an annoying theater kid thing. Like, yes. I think that's most of its reputation is the live experience with like an audience and like the ritual of it. But like revisiting it recently, I was just thinking like, that's not my personal experience with this movie at all. Like I just saw this around about 12 years old and I loved it. Needs to rewatch it all the time. And I'm just thinking back on that era and looking at what's in the movie. And it's like the punk fashion in it, the drag, the like glam rock of it all of the B-movie references and, like, all the B-movie pastiche. Like, this is just everything I love about art <laughs> swirled into one movie. Um, and I feel like I can trace it back to that film, like, and just watching that young enough for it to, like, hit the right nerve. And it's just funny how, like, private of an experience that was to me. And then the couple times I went to see it, um, either at the Britannia or at Shelmet Movies with, like, the whole communal ritual of it i was just like oh this is what musical theater is this is not for me and i just <laughs> never like went back to those again it's just an odd uh thing like I, I think a lot of people think of it as like a movie that's only good because of the community and not like an actually great film and i don't know thinking about like musicals that i don't cringe at i don't cringe at this movie this is this is a nostalgia watch for me as well and it still works i really really enjoyed it I am looking forward to hearing your thoughts about London Road, because that's also one of the few that is not cringy to me, but I guess we'll have to wait and see. That is going to be our next movie of the month um, in April, and I am very excited to talk about that as well. And that was kind of the reason I started watching a few musicals. I was just thinking about, like, yes, the overperformative, like, flat emotions of, like, musical theater performance, like does not do it for me, but there are musicals that I really like. The other one was like a new discovery though, uh, called Starstruck. It's a 1982 film from Australia. So, you know, in like the nineties, there was like just a bunch of really great Australian movies all of a sudden, like I'm thinking like Muriel's wedding and uh, strictly ballroom and just those really like garishly colorful over the top, like John Waters inspired comedies that came out around that time. Yeah. We talked about that, I guess, a little bit, the three of us, when we were talking about Picnic and Hanging Rock also. Yeah. This one came out a decade before that. It's an 82, and it looks and feels just like those movies, except it's a musical. And the reason I can stomach the musical parts of it is because it is a new wave musical. Like, all of the songs are like these, like, new wave punk jams. And the plot of it is pretty much, like, a loose adaptation of all of the promo materials around She's So Unusual, the Cyndi Lauper album. Like, have you ever watched like a bunch of Cyndi Lauper videos in a row? <laughs> oh, yeah. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. <I have>. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Do you kind of feel like in those videos that there's like a plot through line that they're trying to like put yes. as like part of her promotion? Yes. There's a narrative between all of them. Exactly. What would you call that? Like her working class family doesn't want her to be a star? Yeah. It's that sort of the repression of the family, but also being good enough because the Goonies are good enough. <laughs> and also a bunch of like pro wrestlers are always hanging around for some reason. You're talking about the Cindy Lauper <laughs> cinematic universe. Yes. 
So yeah. this movie feels like a jukebox musical version of that plot. Like this girl works at her family's pub and she wants to be the next like new wave pop star. And she gets in with these like punk kids at these clubs, like trying to become the singer of their band. She's like, obviously I'm like way cooler than you. And she dresses kind of like Cindy Lauper and she's really bubbly in the same way. And then her pop career takes off from there. Like they kind of move her from punk to like actual like top forties pop music. And that's kind of her like downfall in the middle of the film. And then she tries to go back to her actual new wave roots at the end. And um, it becomes like both a heist movie. Like they have to like sneak onto the pop stage to get their band out there. And it's just like a full blown musical where like the plot does stop for like actual musical numbers for people to sing directly at the camera, but they're all like, it's early eighties. So it's all like MTV inspired. And it's almost like just music videos being interspersed instead of, you know, traditional musical theater numbers. I absolutely loved this thing. Like it it really just like is the closest thing I've seen to like a five-star movie all year. Uh, Just really blew me away. It's also directed by the lady who did the nineties adaptation of little women with um, Winona Ryder in it. And you would never guess that those two movies were made by the same person. Like one is this bubblegum jukebox musical new wave candy overload. And then I would say the the 90s Little Women, it's a good movie, but it's like a lot more restrained than this. And now I'm like more excited to check out her other work. So I don't know. I think there are like musicals for us musical skeptics out there that we just haven't discovered after watching these two in a row particularly. I think that's like a potential really cringy musical concept, actually. So don't don't say it too loud. <laughs> yeah, I get that. I mean, it's like London Road, True Stories. Oh, I, I love um, Top Secret. Top Secret, yes. The spy comedy that also happens to be a musical because uh, Val Kilmer's character is like a rock musician on this spying trip for the West. I honestly think the rock music is a good in for that. It kind of gives you an excuse to put in like better music than you would normally hear in a full-blown musical, to be honest. Um. Hard agree. Hard agree. In geometry, a cube is a three-dimensional solid object bounded by six square faces, facets or sides, with three meeting at each vertex. The cube is the only regular hexahedron and is one of the five platonic solids. It has six faces, twelve edges, and eight vertices. The cube is also a square parallelopiped, an equilateral cuboid, and a right rhombohedron. It is a regular square prism in three orientations, and a trigonal trapezohedron in four orientations. The cube is dual to the octahedron. It has cubical or octahedral symmetry. The cube is the only convex polyhedron whose faces are all squares. Without the convex restriction, there's one more such figure, which is made out of seven cubes. It can be formed by putting one cube in the center and attaching a congruent cube to each of its faces. All right, so for our episode this week, I had Allie and Brandon watch the 1997 sci-fi thriller film Cube which was produced on a very small budget of $350,000 by a Canadian director named Vincenzo Natali, who this was his first directorial feature. He doesn't really seem to have done a whole lot in the 25 years since, other than 2009's film Splice, 
And a couple of years ago, he directed the Stephen King and Joe Hill adaptation in the tall grass for Netflix. But he has a real sharp and keen eye as demonstrated in this, his debut film. The description for the movie on anything that you'll see, it's currently available on Tubi uh, as well as on Netflix in other countries. If you have a VPN, not that I'm saying that you should or that I did that wink, (laughs) but all of those descriptions always say seven people wake up in a cube and that's not actually quite right. There are seven characters in this film and only seven characters, but we don't actually ever see all seven of them together at once. The most we ever see on screen is five, but it is about people waking up inside of a cube shaped structure with doors on all six of the walls, the four around them, as well as the floor and the ceiling. And it is an ontological mystery, which is a favorite uh, genre of mine, in which they try to figure out how they got there, who is behind putting them there, and if they can get out. The film doesn't have a ton of people who went on to what we might consider huge stardom, but there are two actors within it who went on to be major parts of big sci-fi television franchises. Uh, Nicole DeBoer, Viewers might know from Beyond Reality, which was a Canadian ripoff of The X-Files that aired on Sci-Fi Channel in the mornings in the late 90s. (laughs) And then, of course, she starred as Esri Dax in the final season of Star Trek Deep Space Nine before playing a major role (laughs) on the USA television adaptation of Stephen King's The Dead Zone. And David Hewlett went on to be a major contributor to the Stargate franchise, which I have never seen other than like the random occasional episode on syndication. What did you guys think about Cube? I liked it. I would have guessed an even lower budget, honestly. So I was actually surprised because all you really needed was one set with multicolored lights. So I'm like, huh. But I guess all that the 90s, computer effects really rack up your budget i actually have a story about that those computer effects were done for free what whoa by an effects house in toronto because this was sort of we've sort of talked in various movies of the month before about exploitation and things like the pit and kathy's curse Definitely Kathy's Curse, maybe The Pit, were produced using like Canadian tax dollars. And then there was a huge pushback in the late 70s, early 80s by sort of Canadian conservative officials about the Canadian uh, art foundations contributing money to like horror films. Mostly because of Cronenberg. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And then uh, as a result, they stopped contributing to those for a very long time. And then Cube was one of the first times that they started to give money again. And there was a special effects studio in Toronto that did the effects for free for the exposure just so that they could let potential investors or production companies know that there was an effects house in Canada that could do that for them. You didn't just have to shoot the X-Files in Vancouver and then do all of the post-production work in LA. There were production houses that would do it for you in Canada as well. So those effects actually were free. Wow. It's kind of hard to imagine the movie without them. Yeah. Like, I did not like this movie very much, to be honest. But for the first 10 minutes, I was like, this movie fucking rules. (laughs) Um, (laughs) 
Because it opens with all of the effects. Like, it just spills all of its kills in the first 10 to 15 minutes. Um, You get that shot. I believe it's, like, cold open before the credits even roll of uh, that thing that happened in a bunch of, like, 90s and 2000s movies where someone gets sliced into little pieces. Cute. And they pause for a second, and then they fall apart. He was Yeah, the guy falls apart in little cubed meat chunks. (laughs) What other movies? Like 13 Ghosts had that and like the first Resident Evil movie and a bunch of other stuff from around the time. So, and there's that kill and then there's a kill with like acid that's sprayed in the face of this like master prisoner escapee. And those effects are so cool and the gore there is great. And then it just kind of stops. Like the rest of the movie is them avoiding booby traps, which is like what you would want to see is the booby traps. Like from there on, it's all dialogue. And it kind of devolves into the type of, like, sci-fi channel media you were just talking about. I was thinking of stuff like Sliders and Stargate and Andromeda. Like, real cheap, made-for-TV sci-fi syndication stuff. It's funny, because for some of those that you mentioned, I was like, yeah. And for some of them, I was offended on the behalf of all involved parties. So, I guess that does reveal <laughs> something about me. Where I was like, oh, I guess, yeah, just kind of like Sliders. And like, how dare you compare cube to andromeda don't drag his name (laughs) through the mud like that so i don't know i i don't want to sound like super negative though because just on its face the idea that they pull off on this budget is so smart like it's such a clear concept and you know that cube design you were talking about where they could just move from room to room it's the same set uh reused and shot from a different angle that stuff is really cool, and I feel like I reference this movie all the time comparing it to other stuff without ever actually having seen it until now. It's really cool that they made such a clear impact on like the culture with basically scraps, but I did get kind of tired after the booby trap stopped. I was just like, well, what am I even doing here anymore? Especially once, uh, once Kazan enters the screen. Yeah. Yeah, my enthusiasm really started plummeting. Yeah, I was like, well, it was interesting that a doctor wouldn't know what autism or sensory processing disorder or any of that was, um, even for a 97. And the whole stereotype of the autistic kid who's basically just like a big computer always gets me. But I did like, um, sorry for spoiling it, but I did like that he was the one that got out alive at the end. So there is that. <laughs> yeah, I will say it's been a while since I watched this, but I, I saw it many, many times in my youth. I was shocked by how mean Levin is to him at points, especially because she's otherwise a fairly likable character, but she does not handle his appearance well and she does not handle his behavior well. And I was a little bit surprised by how cruel she seems to him at points. I had forgotten that part of her character. And I think that that, like you said, does speak to its age. But even for 97, seems a little backward. Yeah. I couldn't get a read either on what the movie thought about some of the characters like her. Like, is she the audience surrogate? Dr. Holloway? What? She's like probably in her late 30s. Uh, She's not religious. And she doesn't have kids and lives alone and is a doctor. And goes on these like really intense paranoid rants about the government. 
I could not tell if the movie thought that she was annoying and did not like her where the whole time I was like, this character's fucking great. What a cool lady. Yeah. I uh, think that she's great too. I agree. Like I was like, she's not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I think Holloway is supposed to be in her fifties. I think that she's supposed okay. to be older. And so you've got her in her fifties and then you've got Quentin who is just the poster child for a cab fascist bully He's a fascist bully. And I think that for a minute, because he is big and in charge and he's like an authority figure, the film sort of tricks you at least for a little while into thinking of him as the hero, even though he is like the villain as it becomes revealed, not immediately, but you know, it's foreshadowed. And I I think that reveal works. Whereas Holloway, I think you're supposed to initially see her as a little bit flighty, but then as often is the case, if you're talking about something from like a somewhat leftist perspective, when you first hear it, you're like, that sounds crazy. And then as you actually interpret it and think about it and hear it explained further, you're like, oh, actually, that is a perfectly logical way to view the world and how things should operate. And I think that at first you're supposed to think that she is kind of like, he thinks that she's some bleeding heart liberal and she thinks that he's a fascist, fascist pig. And it turns out that she's right. She may not be right about the cube, but I think that each of those character archetypes exist solely so that each person can present a different interpretation of and or an idea about the cube that makes sense for them from a character point of view. Yeah, I like specifically the theorizing on what the cube means, like kind of the philosophical conundrum at the center about like the lack of purpose and the lack of reason to their predicament. That's great. I was a little more iffy and sort of confused about their opinions of each other and like how we're supposed to feel about them. I I like that she at least is the only person who's like nice to Kazan. Well, I mean, Worth ends up being pretty nice to him, I thought. But he doesn't start out that way. I mean, he doesn't start out really caring about anyone, but he is nice to Kazan. And I think that Levin eventually improves her behavior as well, but she does not respond well to him at first. I was shocked by it, like I said. She's only nice to him, like, once he's sort of useful in a way, which, you know, the ableism of everybody and then the fact that he's the only one that gets out is just like, you know, that's great. Good. <laughs> There's some justice to that. Good. Yeah. I will say, Brandon, if you what you really want are more traps, then you would probably enjoy Cube 2 Hypercube, <laughs> which is much more trap heavy and is more focused on what happens. Although in that one, the Hypercube is in fact a Hypercube. It's a, it's a cube that exists in four dimensions, and that's kind of the point. What I don't like about the sequels is that they do give you an explicit answer about what the cube is. Oh, boo. I don't want that. Yeah. So uh, take that with a grain of salt. If you want traps, then go for hypercube. But be warned, it will make the purpose, idea, and concept of the cube explicit. Although I personally think that it does not ruin this first one. I think that the first one on its own clear and you know separate from everything else if you just interpret it and keep it as its own film that it still works as a discussion of like nobody fucking knows nobody knows what it's for nobody knows who put it here it's just a culmination of a lot of little people passing the buck because bureaucracy just creates things that eat people 
out of ignorance. It's not even malice. It's not that they were chosen and put into this cube as some sort of punishment or even an experiment or much intentionality. It's just that you got to put people in it because it's there. And it's there because bureaucracy created it. You know, as Worth says, whoever initially put this together has retired or passed on or, you know, they've moved on to the next job or they've been fired or whatever. And you can't just admit that this is purposeless. So you got to put people in it. And that's what bureaucracy does. (laughs) I love that stuff. I kind of had a problem with that, but it's just me like wildly theorizing. Yeah, I would love to hear a Dr. Holloway death machine rant if you got one. Locked and loaded. I don't think I can think of anything I want more in this moment. Okay. Okay. So to me, the whole rant about the cube being just there and putting people in it just to put people in it seemed patently false given who a lot of the characters were, especially since we're talking about, oh, each of you were here for a purpose, which it does seem to be true in a lot of ways. For instance, We're going to start out with Worth. Worth helped design the shell of the cube, okay? Holloway asks him, how long have you known they're putting people in here? Because he did know, and he's like, two months. But why would he know that unless he'd been asking questions that he shouldn't have been asking? So, throw him in the cube. Get rid of him. Next up, we've got our cop who's clearly a liability, probably caused... So many settlements for his precinct because he's a hothead. <laughs> Throw him in the queue. Get rid of him. You've got Rin, who's escaped from all these other prisons. Throw him in a box where he can't really figure out how to escape. Watch him go. You know, Holloway, she's clearly a radical that once again has probably been poking her head where it doesn't belong. It seems like these people were put there to just kind of get rid of them. As far as, like, the two kids, like, Levin and Kazan, I don't really know because there's not a whole lot about them other than they're good at math. Too good at math. Too good at math. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) you know, unfortunately, the idea of just wanting to get rid of characters, you know, especially with ableism and Kazan and all of that, like, is depressingly a thing. But that was my thinking, is, like, it's too convenient that there's all of these characters with these beliefs that are dangerous that are thrown in this cube. I don't know. Awfully convenient. I think in a lot of like movies that are directly inspired by this make it way more explicit why people are there. Like it's like a mystery the whole time, but they sort of piece it together. I'm thinking of like the platform or the movie Escape Room a few years ago or the Saw franchise. Like all of the plotting in those movies is about figuring out exactly what we did to deserve to be here. Like, you could be exactly correct that they were, like, selected by the government to be, like, disposed of in this very (laughs) convoluted way where they could have just been executed in their (laughs) sleep. But uh, I like that instead you have this, like, philosophy of, like, trying to make sense of, like, it doesn't make sense that they weren't executed. So let's have these characters puzzle at, like, why this cube was created in the first place. When the reason that it was created is because the movie thought the cube was an interesting thing. Like, the movie is <laughs> like, wouldn't it be weird if there's this murder cube? Um, <laughs> so you, like, plug in all these archetype characters and they have to, like, puzzle at their own, like, existence once they're inside of it. I thought that was an interesting angle. I, it's at least more interesting than the math, which is something I could not find an anchor to. 
the math, I was just like, okay, they're they're talking numbers again. Didn't really mean anything to me. You know, to contribute to your your theory, Allie, there is also a fan theory that Levin is keeping something uh, from the others. Because there are a couple of times where she names off both an even number and a number that ends in five and then takes a second to think about whether they're prime, which those are like the two biggest numbers that are obviously never prime. Because if it ends in a five, it's divisible by five. And if if it's an even number, it's divisible by two. So it's not prime. So there could be more to her than is being let on there as well. To your point, Brandon, I think that... um, so. My old roommate, who also grew up loving this movie, although his favorite is Cube Two Hypercube, he did <laughs> get <laughs> he did get his doctorate in the field of pure mathematics just last year. He defended right as quarantine was beginning because when we were living together, he was still getting his PhD, and this movie was an inspiration to him. Uh, not necessarily an inspiration, I should. Put words it's not that way but he has talked about how this movie is one of the few movies that he saw as a child in which math was treated as something that really could save the day or was really important uh so i think that you're right and that to be honest even for me as like a you know a person who absorbed via osmosis some theories about like pure mathematics to the point where sometimes if Nikki was explaining something to me and I understood it I feared for my soul (laughs) (laughs) even for me there are things about the math in this that don't make any sense at least as a layman I just don't understand what the point was really but I, I guess that's the more you ask questions like that the more the movie's like proving its point that you know there's a sinister quality to the lack of reason in this scenario that like the more you prod at it, the more you're just like playing into its, its game, which is fun. It's, it's fun to talk about. Yeah. I mean, I think it's part prison, part experiment. That was my, my cube thinking. And I mean, I know they like want to do the whole, Oh no, it's nothing. It's meaningless. But like I said, it's just, it, it all seems too convenient to be anything else. Sometimes characters are wrong. Yeah. I think that you're right. I think that there's an argument to be made that there's something more going on. I think I have to watch the other ones to know. There's a lot to love about Cube Zero, which is the one that I, I like, the prequel. But There's also uh, the Japanese remake of Cube that's coming out this year, so I'm your so work is excited. never done. I've never been more excited <laughs> for a Japanese remake in my life. I expect more booby traps in the Japanese oh, version, yeah. to be honest. Oh, yeah. It is also strange that the characters are all... I guess supposed to be American other than Ren, who's clearly French, but they talk about like, um, Oh, they all assume that they've been kidnapped and that they're in a facility somewhere in New Mexico. And none of them, even for a moment is like, no, I'm, I'm not in America. I didn't go to sleep in America last night. <laughs> right. And yet they are all clearly Canadian as indicated by like Holloway's pronunciation of Saskatoon. Yeah. You know, like, uh, <laughs> I think that that's interesting that the Canadians made a movie about American citizens being headbagged off to some black ops site without thinking that maybe their their own government was capable of or would even think to do that. I think that's a Canucksploitation trope, right? Movies obviously in Canada, everyone is obviously Canadian, and you just say it's in Wisconsin or something. Uh, <laughs> you just like <laughs> pretend it's on the other side of the border because uh, it's easier to sell that way. To me... Like, Nicole DeBoer is so inherently Canadian 
which I know is a weird thing to say. <laughs> I love her, and I I loved her as Esri, and I think that's the only other thing I know her from. But I'm big into Deep Space Nine. She's so good, and I I understand the criticism that like people don't like Esri because she was a last season replacement for Jadzia. I completely understand that, and I also agree with the argument that there might potentially be too much Esri in that final season because you know. She is a brand new character, so they have to... I'm sorry, we're getting off on a Star Trek tangent. Yeah, but... we're, we're, we're going on Deep Space Nine now. Uh... <laughs> sorry, Brandon. See you later. No, um, <laughs> she, she was on that Beyond Reality show, which I really enjoyed. And then she was also on what was presented as the first Sci-Fi Channel original series called Mission Genesis. She got top billing along with another guy who, not surprisingly, was on... Andromeda. Uh, Gene Roddenberry's Andromeda, which you mentioned earlier. <laughs> um, Vindicated. Genesis, as it was called in the US, it was called Deepwater Black uh, on Canadian television. Uh, it had an introductory special hosted by Leonard Nimoy, and I was 11 years old. So as you can imagine, I was a pretty big devotee of Mission Genesis as well. So Nicole DeBoer has just been an actress who's been in things that I've liked for my whole life at this point. And Cube is also a huge part of that because I was probably 11 or 12 when I first saw Cube. Even to watch this, I tried to recreate the experience, which was turning out all of the lights in my house and then watching Cube in bed very quietly and hoping my parents not didn't hear that I was still up and watching television uh, when I should be in bed on a Saturday night. You know, that's the best <laughs> way to watch Cube. And, and this was the second best way. Although one thing I wanted to note, because I, I actually did watch it on Tubi, despite my wink-winking about VPNs, the commercial breaks, where Tubi decides to put them, does not always align where there are obviously, like, commercial oh, breaks. Oh, it's arbitrary. Spots. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was surprised by that. I was like, man, they're just, just the middle of a scene. And then, like, 30 seconds later, there'll be a fade to black. Like, after it comes back from commercial, it'll fade to black into a place where, like, oh, why didn't you just put it there? At least Sci-Fi Channel did manage to do that. Yeah, I kind of appreciated that because in this case, at least preserved the fact that I wasn't completely tripping and seeing that this felt like a television show. Like, the seeing the fade to blacks without a commercial break, there's no doubt that that was just in the movie, you know? Like, it's not like something that they just sort of added for, like, television broadcasts. It's like, oh, this is kind of structured, like, individual scenes in an episode of, like, the holodeck episodes of, like, Star Trek or something. I don't know, it feels like a weird bottle episode of a television show in its structure. But the mystery that they have to solve together is like hinged on the fact that they don't know each other or why they're there. That's like kind of the whole point of their conflict. I love that as a genre. I love an ontological mystery. Even if it's one that's less mysterious than this. I love the TV show Dark Matter. I loved the British movies The Exam. I think we've talked about that one before as well as uh, Circle where the people wake up in a dark room and they're in a circle and they're standing on like a device that kills one of them. Circle's good. Cube crawled through these vents so that Circle could stand on that circle. It's impressive <laughs> how much it feels like this influenced stuff like that. Like the fact that Saw made like so many millions of dollars off of this movie's back is like, it's just impressive this came out in 97, you know? It is it is like ahead of its time in a lot of ways, even though it's like a little cheapo, scrappy production. Yeah, it's like the, the Ur example 
of like an ontological mystery as it would come to be in the 21st century and the way that like psycho sort of presaged slasher movies. I, I mean, I know that this is kind of a, a facile argument, but or a facile discussion, but like uh, psycho presaged slasher movies by a couple of decades, like cube kind of presaged how common and popular this sort of story would become. I mean, it predates dark city. Yes. That was the other one I thought of a lot when I was watching this. And you know, it's so different though, because dark city is very dense. Yeah. It's very like aesthetically dense. It's soundtrackly dense. So much xylophone guys. Yeah. (laughs) So it's interesting that I did think of dark city for this one to be that different is just, yeah. Well, Brandon, normally, Brandon, whenever you say, I didn't care for this, as whenever we start to talk about a movie, you don't normally have this many praiseworthy things to say about it. So I'll take, I'll take it. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, like, I think if it done everything exactly the same, the same characters, the same ideas, the same sets, I love that they do not leave the cube at all, or at least whenever they do, it's just like a fade to white. You're like, you don't get to see what's going on. I love the whole structure and all of the component pieces just got bored when the booby trap stopped. Like that's my only like real hurdle here is like, you can feel that they wanted to impress you out of the gate and you are set up to expect a certain rhythm of these characters being picked off by the cube. And then the budget runs out. They kind of just hang around for a while after that. It got to be a little tiring after a while. If there was anything in the actual debate that I could hook onto, I kind of see myself in worth a little bit. I like the uh, the Dr. Holloway character a lot. Her death machine rant is like probably my favorite part of the entire film. Love it. But worth just talking about how his life has no purpose. and He's just like, just goes to work, pushes his little papers and then goes home. No one's going to miss him now that he's in the cube. And then like, extrapolating from that to just talk about how sinister the like pointlessness of the thing that they're trapped inside of as like a metaphor for like life in general. Maybe that's why I'm like latching on his character as being the correct one. I know Ali was saying he's not necessarily correct. It was just like, Oh, I see my own view of my life and how I'm like drifting through it in this character. So I don't know. There are like flashes of the ideas I liked as well. I just wanted more deaths more cube chunks i get what you're saying and i i understand it and there's a part of me that also agrees with you that cube with more booby traps is more fun but i don't know that i want it to be more fun and i also have seen cube with more more booby traps and it is cube to hypercube hypercube i love that you say the full title every time <laughs> it, it's a title that demands to be verbalized but I also think that the small cast justifies that by keeping this down to seven people. I, we didn't mention this, but the film was at least partially inspired by what I think is one of the not best twilight zone episodes, actually Uh, five characters in search of an exit, you know, spoiler alert for a 70 year old television show, but it turns out that the characters are actually dolls in a donation bin in a storm. Whoa. Uh, so you like, you have these characters that are in this, like, you know, (laughs) trying to get out. And I think the cube, if you involve more traps, then you have to add more people. And then that kind of destabilizes the purpose. 
I don't know. Maybe it was just like the fact that the deaths were more spaced out. Like maybe if that cube slice opening and that face melter follow up weren't like right after each other, I wouldn't have been set up to expect a certain rhythm. But I, I can't pretend that I wasn't bored by the time it all resolved. That's fair. Allie, I'm glad that you you seem to have enjoyed it as well. I did. I did enjoy it. You know, I usually dislike movies where it's like, this is nihilism, the movie. But <laughs> I, <laughs> I did enjoy it. And I think part of that is like, I was able to interpret it as not nihilism in a way, because they do leave it so open. I love your interpretation too. I, in all the years that I've uh, spent since I saw this movie the first time and all the times I've seen it since, I don't think I ever conceptualize it that way. But like when you put it together, it's clear that like, yeah, you're probably right. Too many coincidences. And again, if there are those of you out there who want to see more traps, but you know, don't mind having the concept of the cube ruined for you. Cube two hypercube and the prequel cube zero which was released very, very shortly after Cube 2 Hypercube. They're out there, and they're also on Tubi. It sounds like we need a sequel to this episode to assess the Hypercube. (laughs) We need to come back to the cube. I can't argue with that. We are trapped in the cube, I think is what's happening. Yeah, the longer I stare at these few rooms in my house, um, (laughs) it is starting to feel like a death contraption. (laughs) I cannot (laughs) find my way out of. Although I do know the purpose of why I'm inside. Yeah, at least we It know is largely why. the government's fault. <laughs> <laughs> and bureaucracy and, and people people mm-hmm. not caring. Yeah. And the cops are the villains in this reality as well. I was going to say, all can agree on that. I really enjoyed a movie where it's just like, openly, this cop is a cop. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, it's very openly like, of course you're this way. Yeah, there's no there's no bones about it. He is, he is yeah. violent. He it has cost him his marriage, so it's not an isolated incident. Yeah, and I mean, you know, we all know the statistics here. I think that was probably a lot of why I enjoyed this movie. I'm as big old leftist. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, I don't trust that cop. It really plays with your expectation because in a movie, as soon as there is a cop and they sort of take charge, they generally are the hero, and that is sort of what copaganda is even if it's not intentional there have even been things that i have written like i you know i wrote i was trying to write out like a like a giallo story in which of course one of the characters is a detective because that's just the genre and then really have like had to struggle with like ooh, maybe that's maybe i have to figure out a, a way to change this from the ground up to because copaganda at its core is often just ignorant and this movie is not ignorant it is straight up like yeah cops are bad they're bad people. No, and what was really interesting and great about this uh, anti-copaganda is that he literally is just like, the establishment is just a bunch of people like me. And then he goes crazy. Yeah. And I'm like, oh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. <laughs> you're exactly right. <laughs> That's a big problem. <laughs> well, as sure as all cops are bastards, uh, we will be back next week with another episode. We will be talking about... Evil twin movies, um, starting with one I've never seen before. Bernie's making us watch this movie called Madhouse from 1981. I've never seen that before, but we're going to do a bunch of evil twin thrillers uh, based off of that recommendation. Okay. Yeah. I'm not familiar with Madhouse. That'll be fun. And we'll talk to y'all then. Mm-hmm.
Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye. I am adding and subtracting. I'm controlling and composing. I'm the operator with my pocket calculator. I'm the operator.